even though I never thought anybody would execute on <laughs> on their very literal and very flowery descriptions of how they want me dead, um, it was very tough. So I've seen a lot on the sad side of persuasion. My coping mechanism was to dive into the dens of misinformation and to try and understand them. Welcome to Wisdom, Wealth, and Wellness, a podcast on overcoming behavioral biases and blind spots. Sponsored by Satofsky Asset Management, and this is Jonathan Satofsky. Oh man, do we have an episode for you. This is Jonathan Satofsky of Satofsky Asset Management. Um, it is actually safe to say, and, and, and he's, he's not going to believe this, I probably owe him a lot of money. I think I owe him a good amount of money because he has been directly influential to saving uh, my people in my ecosystem, at least, and I can measure this at least a hundred million dollars. I mean, this is no joke. So this guy is as legit as they come. Dan Ariely, he's a Israeli American professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke, formerly at MIT. He's a New York times bestselling author, Ted speaker, highly sought after, you know, speaker for known for his work and decision-making rationality, social norms, predictably irrational, one of my favorite books, life-changing. If you haven't read it, like it's it's a must. It should be on everyone's bookshelf. Um, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. He's received multiple awards for his contributions in the field of behavioral economics. Everyone could study the numbers, but behavioral economics is something that absolutely should not be overlooked. Oh, man, am I psyched to have you. Thanks, Dan. So lovely to, to be here and uh, and have an opportunity to chat with you again. It's been too long. Yeah, well, I I never told you about the hundred million dollars of savings. I, we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to renegotiate, you know, your payment for that saving, you know, uh, for a long time ago. But but truth be told, you know, you you explored the by, interaction. By the way, I I I've also used your uh, your advice uh, repeatedly. You know, when we when we first met. Uh, I think you were the the first advisor I I met that wanted me to come and talk to him about what I'm going to spend on, and not just uh, savings. And he said, you know, don't don't be don't worry. You're about to buy something big. Let's talk about it before you you save. And I think it's just so important. So uh, thank you for that as well. Oh well, that's nice to know that I made a contribution. I'm I'm very I'm very pleased to hear that. That's great. Um. Let's start with something that I think is probably top of mind to everyone, because uh, I, I have some, I mean, half hour is not enough time, but I'm, I'm going to do the best we can to dig into some topics that I think would be kind of compelling. You know, you had a really cool chat bot. You had some people ask 10 questions, and you had the, uh, here's Dan's answer, invisible to anyone. People had to decide, was it Dan's answers or was it ChatGPT's answers? I thought it was brilliant. I mean, just the way you frame educating people about it. It's, it's awesome. But just the idea of, of technology and human behavior and, and interaction, I just wonder what you think in terms of behavioral, um, in terms of human behavior, whether this AI and technology is making people behave better or worse. So I think, I think, I think both, and probably initially it will be more of the worse than, than the better. Uh, so one of the things you don't know about me is that uh, during during COVID, I became uh, very hated by the COVID deniers. 
so I, I helped all kinds of governments and I became very hated. There's actually a, a video going around explaining how because I got injured, because I have all these scars, um, I started hating healthy people. And that's why I joined Bill Gates and the Illuminati trying to kill uh, as many people as possible. Now, it sounds funny, but when death threats arrive, um, it's, there's, something, there's something very, very chilling uh, about that. Even though I never thought anybody would execute on, <laughs> on their very literal and very flowery descriptions of how they want me uh, dead. Um, it was very tough. So I've seen a lot on the sad side of persuasion. Mm. So I, I, um, my, my mechanism, my coping mechanism was to dive into the dens of misinformation and to try and understand them. Mm. And the problem is it's very hard to understand what's real information and what's not. Sometimes it takes many, many hours. And there's something much more compelling. If you think about the, this episode about here is Dan Ariely, got wounded, started hating healthy people. It's like, it's a beautiful 90-second story, right? Where you have the creation of a villain and um, very hard for the truth to compete with that. So so I'm very worried. I'm very worried about the, the world of misinformation. And I can imagine that the world of misinformation will get so good that it would be individually tailored depending on your particular, on your particular interest. So that, that side really, really worries me. That side really worries me. Uh, do I see also uh, good sides? Uh, absolutely. Uh, one, of the, one of the projects I'm working on now is a project that is trying to uh, improve the last chapter of people's lives. Uh, imagine the, the chapter from the time people are told that they have a terminal illness to the end of life. In the U.S., it's slightly longer than five years, right? thanks to medical technology, it's, it's, a long, it's a long chapter. And the question is, how do we make that chapter better? How do we help people figure out who they want to share information and how? How do we help people find their purpose uh, for life? How do we help people deal with their symptoms, uh, find meaning, find daily joy, um, dealing with family issues, uh, a strayed uh, strange uh, relatives and so on. That's common. That's that's not a that's not a rarity. It's 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 no. <clears throat> more prevalent than you would expect. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's very. It's very, like these, these challenges are very prevalent, and actually, uh, people who deal with them uh, end their lives much better. If you ask what's a good end of life, it's about feeling accomplished, feeling loved, surrounded by people you love, and having no pain and no fear of that your body is not dignified in terms of how it's failing. But a lot of it is about, about psychological sense of achievement and, and peace and being loved. Um, in any case, in, in those applications, if you think about a, a digital assistant that helps you on this five years journey with, with lots of very complex things, but figuring out exactly where you are today are you in a good day or not a bad day? Are you in pain or not? Can we ask you to do this or this is too much and so on? And the opportunities for AI are incredible. Because, you know, when you go to a doctor, it's a half an hour that is determined. 
X days ago. We don't know exactly what's your mood, what's the doctor mood, what are you ready for. But if you have something that stays with you for the whole duration, your opportunities are just incredible. So hmm. I do see the the tremendous opportunity, but I I, I do I do worry. Um, yeah. And you know, if you if you think about how we evolved, I mean, one of the I think one of the big issues is to think about how we evolved. And we evolved in nature, evolutionary, to trust information. We evolved to trust because signals in nature are, are basically truthful, right? The, the standard signal is the is the tail of the peacock. The peacock has a big, the male peacock has a big, uh, non-functional tail that is designed to communicate to the woman, to the to the female. Look how. Strong aim. I can hang. I can. I can still be alive with this with this big tail. If you take young peacocks, by the way, and you stitch long tails to them, they get eaten. Right? It's a real. Hmm. It's a real signal. And in nature, most signals are real signals. So we 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 evolutionary had the reason to trust them. Now comes this this new era, in which it's what's called cheap talk. There's no. You can say whatever you want to say. There's no, um, sometimes there's no ramification to, to saying that. And recently we had some new, uh, much more complex things into the realm of dishonesty. <clears throat> and so, so I, 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 think, I think it's going to be a mixed blessing and we have to be very careful. You, you know, it's funny, you, you, you made me think about something. In, in, uh, in religious study, the, the, the religious text often reminds you to work on being in alignment between your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And if I remember correctly, you had done an experiment a long time ago. This, this goes back, you know, probably several decades. But people would answer, uh, you'll frame it better, but I, my, my recollection is people answered a bunch of questions. And you said, look, you put money in the jar based on the number you got right. I'll give you $10. You know, I'll give you $7. If you got 7 out of 10 right, I'll give you $10. If you got 10 out of 10 right. And you know, I won't even look. You just put put the, the the take the money out of the out of the bin, and you put your exam questions in the box. And then you had a second set, which you actually read them, if I remember correctly, the Ten Commandments. And then had them do it again, and you saw they're cheating. Uh, you know, maybe re- retell if I did that accurately. Yeah, no, it's basically true. I mean, we got people to sign honor codes uh, in places, in universities that had no honor codes. Uh, we got people to uh, write down the Ten Commandments. We got all kinds of all kinds of codes. The UK government did a study like this with taxes, uh, showing uh, different effects. And yes, when you remind people who they want to be, we are we become more of the people we want to be. We kind of want to be good people, but we also sometimes enjoy being a little bit asleep at the wheel. And not not paying too much attention because it's also fun to, you know, make a few extra bucks or drive slightly over the speed limit or pretend you're slightly younger on a dating app. And well, so- now you can, now with AI, you know, like the, the, in in New York City, I think I've gotten a couple of tickets. I, I've gone forty forty one miles an hour, and I didn't even realize it was a twenty five mile an hour zone. But now they have cameras, so AI is making money for New York City. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a little bit. I, I, I always I thought this was really also interesting project you worked worked on the idea of happier a happier culture. Happier employees yeah. have led 
to more profitable businesses and more successful companies. And, and you've, you know, created Irrational Ventures, if I remember, that has um, been working to execute on that idea. T- can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you were pretty excited about that notion about how to measure happiness, how to, how, to, how to create a happy culture, which I think is, in all of this, is really the core of many people's existence, whether end in life or wherever they are. How do, how do, you, how do you measure that and, and how's that been going? Yeah, so, so, so my, my research on uh, human capital had kind of three main stages. stage. Stage one was the lab. I would bring people to the lab. I would pay them more, pay them less, give them compliments, do all kinds of things, and I would see an effect. Okay, a lot I can say about this, but that was chapter one. Chapter two, I would go to one company at a time, and I would tinker with their bonuses. I would tinker with compliments and all kinds of things. And things from the lab basically translated into higher productivity. Yeah. And when I worked with companies, it was mostly people in the production line or call centers or things I could measure productivity. But this uh, new, new adventure called the Irrational Capital, and we started about six years ago. And the question was, uh, maybe some companies are just better at it than others. Some companies understand uh, human nature or stumbled on it in a, in a better way. So we, we looked at data. We started with data from surveys, you know, the satisfaction surveys. Later on, we added things, but, but we started just with that. Now imagine you have a satisfaction survey with 80 questions, and you have 500 companies answer this and 1,000 people per company, and we had the data from 2006. So we had lots of data. And we started by saying, imagine we had only one question. Let's say the question is, how good are the chairs and tables in your organization? Or how good is the coffee? Or how do you feel about your salary? And so on. But imagine one question. How do you feel about coffee? And we said, imagine that we took the companies and we sorted them from the company that treats their employees best in terms of coffee to the employees worst. And we bought in 2006 the top 20% companies that treat their employees best on quality of coffee. <coughs> and we kept that portfolio. And in 2007, we have new data. Some companies go up, some go down. And yeah. we do a portfolio from 2006 until COVID. We'll come back to COVID in a second of the 20% top companies who treat their employees best on quality of coffee, on chairs and tables, on retirement, and so on. And we then compare this to the S&P 500. And it turns out that even though those questions were not selected for any economics of it, almost all of them outperformed the S&P 500. Now, some were just like the S&P, some were much better. So now the question is, which one are slightly better or the same, and which ones are much better. So um, I, I told you about this. I'm not going to put you on the, on the quiz. But for example, we find that salary doesn't really matter. If you say, does salary have a, an input into alpha? The answer is no. But perception of fairness of salary matters a lot. Hmm. Uh, feeling appreciated was one of the most important. Actually, in general, we found that what's called extrinsic motivation, bonuses, salary, retirement, health benefits, uh, chairs, tables don't matter. The things that matter are things about intrinsic motivation. How connected do you feel to, your, to the company? Uh, how much appreciate do you feel in general? 
uh, do you feel that promotions are being are being feared? Fair? Do you feel appreciated? Uh, do you feel psychological safety? Do you feel trusted? All of those things end up mattering a lot. And and I can go more deeply into this, but there are two other things I want to say, so I'll say them first. COVID. It turns out that in COVID, intrinsic motivation became even more important. Why? Imagine a kid. Imagine a kid in, in seventh grade. If the kid goes to the classroom, the teacher can say, sit straight, don't talk to Johnny, put your phone down. If the kid is at home, they can turn the teacher off. Now, adults are not kids, but not very different. When people are home, they turn the teacher off, right? How many people at some point said, oh, my Zoom is too slow, my phone, <laughs> I need to turn off my camera. And, and they basically go ahead and do, and do something else. So, so the reality that intrinsic motivation has always been important during COVID more. And to the extent that work from home is here to stay, I think it will remain important. And then the, the last point I want to make is about measuring the right thing rather than the thing that is easy. And I'll give you an example from something called the Xi Index. I don't know if you're aware of the Xi Index. The Xi Index is the idea of saying, let's take all the companies and let's sort them out from the company who has the highest percentage of women at the board and top management to the company who has the lowest. And let's buy the company who has a very high, the highest percentage of women. And again, let's do it over the years so we always have the companies who have a higher percentage of women at top management and in uh, and the board. And how well do you think this index does? Now I'll ask you, what do you think? It does much better than the S&P, slightly better, the same, slightly worse, much worse. Well, I'm, I'm only going to frame it from the standpoint because I remember a long time ago, I'm, I'm going to assume better because women have been shown evidentially to be more passive in trading men are a little bit more jittery quick to turn things over so women are a little longer term in thinking and i think some of the evidence of even female leaders in government around the world had better performance in covid too so that, that would be my guess okay so so good guess i think you have the same guess as the people who created that index uh, the results are very disappointing the result is that this, this is a, a very uh, not desirable index from a financial perspective. It loses money almost every year wow. compared to the S&P 500. Now the question is why? And, and the answer is that if you think about it for five minutes, you would realize that equal number doesn't mean equal treatment. These are two different things. You can have, in fact, the whole profession like nursing or teaching that the majority are women and we treat all of them badly. Just because you have a higher representation doesn't mean that you, people feel like they're treated equally. Right. And just because women at the top feel good doesn't mean that it penetrates the whole organization. But I have data about how people feel. So for each company, instead of taking the average of how people feel in terms of fairness of promotion, for example, I do a delta score. How do the men feel and how do the women feel? And I look at the companies that have a lower delta. So I buy the companies that have the lowest, the lowest delta, the lowest difference between men and women. That index does amazingly well. Now, why is it? 
because equality is incredibly important. If you take half your workforce and you mistreat them, that has terrible implications. But, but the people who did this index, or in general, if you think about ESG, there are so many times that people are measuring what's easy rather than what's important. And in the question of, of gender, it's really important to measure are people feel like they're being treated equally. You might have, oh, yes, the numbers are easy. It makes you feel comfortable. Oh, you know, we have equal numbers. No, the hard work could be not about the number, but about get, making sure that people feel like they're being treated well. So you brought up something that you brought up. I mean, there's, wow, packed with so much great information. Just, you know, got me, my, my, my wheels churning on, on thinking if I'm appreciating my people enough, <laughs> people around me, I got to work on that. But the other thing you mentioned about, are we measuring the right things? This, this has sort of always been a pet peeve, I think, in financial services, particularly financial planning, when you're trying to help someone map out multi-generational wealth and retirement, educating your kids and all this stuff. What do you think, this is your own personal perspective on, what is the right thing to measure? Because, you know, when they say what measured gets done, you know, when I first started for the first decade, maybe even to this day, someone's like, well, you know, what am I going to pay for? I, I could just buy the S&P for free. Like, you know, like, you know, you're going to do better or worse. And, and, and I, this you may not know, but an interesting stat, I said, you know, if I created a blind trust, and I put it all in Berkshire Hathaway, and we sat on it for 25 years, you know, 40% of the time, you're going to underperform by magnitudes of 20 to 60%. So if I'm not called the Oracle Omaha, you're going to bail. You know, there's no way if that's your measuring stick, you're going to sit on it. So what do you think is the right measuring stick in, in the metric of developing, a, a, I guess, psychological safety, appreciation, you know, support and structure to be able to help someone confidently um, approach life and foster their goals. I mean, how do you how do you think about that? Yeah. So, so I I think that the key for me is resilience. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by resilience. Uh, there's a concept um, called secure detachment. Imagine you're your father. Uh, I actually know your. I am. I have three kids. Yes, I'm a father. Yep. Yeah. Trying to figure out what that means to be a father. We're, we're still defining that, but yes. So imagine you have a kid and the kid is four years old. And in one case, you go to the playground and you say, kid, go to the, go to the swing. And the kid goes and comes back 15 minutes late. If that's what happened, you've achieved the kid with secure attachment. On the other hand, if the kid goes and turns around every minute to see if you're still waiting for him, if you're still around, then you haven't managed secure attachment. And I think that resilience is basically an insurance company, an insurance, an insurance policy, that things would actually be okay, that I can take risks and I can try different things. Uh, I think it's true with romantic love. I think it's true in our business endeavors. I think it's about, you know, if you, if you feel that your family, your society and so on will catch you if something will go wrong, then... We can do lots of things. So I, I think that the right thing to, to, to create is to think about how do we create resilience? How do we create the sense that we're capable? And we could, you know, if, if we think hard and we want to and so on, we can try it out. Yeah. And, and if it doesn't work out, it's fine and nothing terrible would happen. That, that I think is, is a, 
it, because you see, it's not happiness. It's not content. Like if somebody is, oh, you know, I'll sit on the beach drinking mojito. No, you want to take somebody and say, as a human being, I want you to feel that you can take risks. You can imagine doing whatever you feel like, like that is the right thing to do. And if it turns out that you were wrong, it will be okay. As long as you thought about it and so on, it's, it's up to you to try and make things better, but we'll be here to catch you. I think that's, and by the way, as income inequality increases in society, the feeling of resilience goes down, even at the level of neighborhoods, because when, when people feel that the people around them are either richer or poorer, they're less likely to go and ask for help. So, so I, I think that what we want to develop is people who basically have the guts to try and energy and motivation and desire to try and do exciting things. I love that. I love that. That's, 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 you know, when you're in a healthy relationship and you feel like, you know, wow, when you have a good partner, you feel like you can run through brick walls and you can, you can tackle much more ambitious things. I I, I really, I like that, that definition. Thank you. Um, You know, you, you've written about the roles of emotion in decision-making and, uh, and clearly, you know, advertising and society sort of plays off of our emotions, you know, trying to get people's, you know, emotions yeah. high. How do we strike the right balance, particularly, as you said, when, when, when it's hard to know what information is true, what's not true, you know, because of AI and, you know, all, this, all, all the data of what's, what's actually truthful information. How, does, how do you think the appropriate way to balance being rational, rationally intelligent and emotionally intelligent in our decision making in any aspect of life? Yeah. So, so first of all, uh, this is this is really really important because uh, lots of the joys of life are come from being irrational, like falling in love, or writing <laughs> writing poetry. Right? You don't say, "Oh, let's just have no emotion." No, no. Emotions are emotions are are wonderful, and we don't want to to take them to take them away. You mean we don't all uh, want to become stoics? We don't want to be right. like you know, <laughs> not good. Find yeah. balance. Okay. So. So I think, I think so. You know, we, we want to give money to charity, and we want to get excited over things, and we want to cry, and, and we want to feel empathy. I mean, there's a lot of things that we that we want in society. I think what we need to do is not to eliminate emotions, but we need to look at every decision context. And if we think that emotion is likely to derail us in a big way, then we need to to take to take care of. It. So, you know, you go to a restaurant and you're really in a good mood and so on. And the waiter gets you to eat an extra, uh, to eat a dessert you didn't plan on it or to get an extra uh, glass of something. Okay, not, uh, not, not, a, big, uh, not a big loss. Uh, on the other hand, there are, there are times when, when emotion is seriously seriously derailing us and, and uh, you know of course we can think about big things like uh, getting married to the wrong person or getting into a car accident or something like that but you know emotional eating is a big deal uh, we have we have all kinds of evidence showing that uh, diabetes and management of diabetes doesn't come from the average behavior it comes from those days where we feel like we don't give you know, a hoot anymore, that we yeah. have a hard day, we're annoyed, we kind of reach the threshold, we call it a breaking point, 
and you say, you know what? I don't care. I don't want to think long term. I just want some happiness now. Let me get the cheapest, easiest, most available way to get some happiness, which is in the freezer. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, I think I think we need to analyze the the places where emotion is is derailing us in an unhealthy way, and and try to fight them in a very specific way. It's not that we are trying to be non-emotional people. So, so I'm thinking about it specifically in, re- in regards to finance. You know, I, I look at this data daily, weekly, monthly, you know, ongoing. Let's say there's a headline, you know, I think there's a study. What, what, what country is, has the most probability of recession this year? And I'll say, oh, the U.S., 66% chance of recession. Well, is it rational or emotional to look at that data and say, okay, I should sell all my U.S. stocks, you know, because there's a 66% chance that we're going to recession? You know, as soon as there's, and that's just one data point, but like daily, weekly, monthly, whenever these, what seems like rational, logical data points show up, the behavior reacts to it. And and I wonder how do you decipher, is it rational or is it an emotional response to what they think is rational behavior? Because ultimately, you know, if you, if you can you know, if you're measuring not daily, weekly, but if you're measuring over 10 years, you want to ride over those speed bumps, you know? Yeah. So, so investing is a good example. So first of all, I don't know if, if you remember, but um, at some point early in our uh, working relationship, um, there were a lot of turbulence in the market yeah. and uh, I was going on a weekend away and I basically uh, locked myself out of my account so that I couldn't see anything, right? It was like, I really just don't want, don't want to see. But, but here's the thing. If you log into your portfolio, you see what's going on first, and then you make decisions, emotion is going to penetrate. Well, you know, you, know, you probably know this study. Dead accounts outperform living. The dead right. outperform the living, yeah, for that very, very reason, I think. That's right. Um, on the other hand, if you make a decision first, so look, if I, if I want to think about uh, Tesla, yeah. uh, what I think about Tesla moving forward has nothing to do with how they performed yesterday. Right. So, so if I, if I forget, forget day trader, we're talking long term. Um, so so the, the, the right approach is to come and have a strategy, have a strategy in advance. But even... Even for other things, like you know, if you if you have rules of behavior in advance, yeah, those are going to not be influenced by emotion. So, for example, if you say um, sixty forty, I'm gonna just rebalance to sixty forty. It's mechanical; you don't think about it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, but but if you say, okay, what's the chance for recession? You could say, here is what I'll do. I'll I'll listen to. Jonathan about his uh, expectation, and the moment it reaches eighty percent, I'll sell thirty percent of my stock. I think about this in advance, not when it's happening. You see, if yeah. you make the, if you make your rule when something is happening, you'll make the rule to justify the decision you you really want to make. There's a right? quote by a friend of mine. He says, "The mind finds what the, the the eyes and ears, you know, find what the mind's already looking for or something like that, you know. So, you know, if, if at the moment, look, a lot of times we make an emotional decision and then we use our cognitive mechanism to rationalize. Right. But it's decision first, 
rationalization second. That's what we right. don't want to happen. Right, right. So, but, 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 so, but if you say it in advance, then you don't have an emotion. Yeah. So, so you've been super generous with your time and I, I, I would spend like days talking to you because there's just so much to learn. We can go deep on a million topics. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll ask one or two last just quick things because I, I think this, this really distinguishes humanity from AI, I think. You know, I think you've written the importance of empathy and decision-making. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about cultivating empathy in our daily lives because I think this is an important characteristic and that empathy isn't just toward others. It's, it's toward ourselves in those irrational moments of decision-making, I imagine, right? Yeah. So, so, so you know, empathy, empathy is really kind of um, like space travel. Uh, you get to travel uh, into somebody else. Yeah. And uh, you get to travel into yourself in a different uh, time, in a different, in a different state. My friend says it's easy to be Einstein for others, but Mr. Magoo for yourself. So it's easy to be empathetic for others, you know, but harder to do it for yourself, you know? Yeah. And, and I, think, I think it's more nuanced than that. So, you know, because I was in hospital for a long time, I, I cry very easily about uh, physical pain yeah. of, of people and, and I, I feel their pain. Uh, on the other hand, little scratches, <laughs> I feel... <laughs> How can somebody worry about that? Yeah. So, you know, above a certain level, I have empathy. Below a certain level, I, I think I've lost it. Yeah. But, but you know, empathy is, is really understanding the complete human being. When, when I think about you or when I think about myself in a different state, it's very easy to think about the rational side. Here is Jonathan. He's waking up. He really wants to exercise, but... This is happening, or he can't find his shoe, and whatever. The, 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 but it's very hard to to integrate the emotional component. And what empathy allows us is to integrate the emotional component, and therefore come up with much better understanding, much better mechanism, and so on. And you know, um, you know, we, we I, you mentioned how how difficult it is for people to. We all know that the friendship that have been broken are weighing on us. That you know, relationship and, and so on. The the first stage is very difficult. Mm. We we can't we, we don't fully kind of exercise how would it feel for us and for the other person uh, down the line. But but if we did, we would do very different decisions and <laughs> and, and do much do much better. Yeah, that's that's tough. Um, thank you so much for spending the time. Um, where, can I, where can, can I people, say, can I say, can I say one last thing? You could say as many things as you want. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful. I don't want to overstep my bounds with your time. So, so one of the things that I, I think, uh, the, the financial industry is getting wrong, um, is asking people for the risk attitude. Right. We talked, I remember you, you had a really cool experiment showing that, Basically, people are always going to answer just north of center, <laughs> no matter how you frame it. You know, if you frame it zero to five, they'll say three and a half. If you frame it, you know, zero to ten, they'll say six and a half. You know, whatever. You, you know, had, you had more options, but but I, yeah. I, there's so many ways to make this point. I want to make it slightly differently today. Okay. Imagine you're a doctor, and imagine that two identical people show up to you with 
a broken leg. And you ask them, uh, how well do you deal with pain? And one of them says, I have no problem. And one of them says, oh, I really hate pain. Should you operate on them differently? The answer is no. The answer is you should give one person less painkiller and the other person more painkiller. Now imagine two people come to you exactly the same situation, the same wealth, the same income, and so on. And one of them says, oh, I really don't like risk. And one of them says, oh, I really like risk. Should you tell the first person you should be poor and the second person you should be wealthy? The answer is no. The answer is that maybe you should give the, the, the first person <laughs> Xanax or uh, teach them meditation or do something. I, I think that risk attitude should be an output variable and not an input variable. You, as my financial advisor, should look at my financial situation and you should tell me what my risk attitude should be. You shouldn't change my portfolio to fit my feelings. Like we talked about when are feelings doing a bad job. I think with money, there's objective wealth. Somebody's going to retire. Somebody uh, needs... I have, I have a really important thing to say here because this has been on my mind for 30 years. You should tell like the uh, CFP board or CIMA or, or CFA board. I remember taking an ethics question on this. If you had to reach someone's retirement goals, do you give them more risk or do you put, do you match the risk to their, to their, to their desired risk level? And I'm like, if they say their desired risk level is I want to be all in treasuries, but I know they're going to run out of money. I know that a greater risk is not their psychological safety is them being homeless and being broke. <laughs> so I always thought like, wait a second, don't I need to educate them to be able to cover their blind spots and the risk? That's what a financial doctor should be doing. That's and right. that wasn't the answer in the ethical exam. I was like, what? I mean, how can I solve a problem then? That means that I know how to solve your leg problem if I'm a doctor, but I'm not allowed to perform the surgery because you said, I only want a Band-Aid. Like, That's what? Right. How, do you, how, do you, how can you help? I mean, that's insane. Yeah. So I, I think that's something that the, the industry is getting wrong. There, there, and, um, there, there we can, we, there's so many things that, that point yeah. to this point. We don't have to belabor it, but I think that, I think it's important to realize that um, a risk, eventually people need money to retire. And yeah. financial advisors need to worry about the money and they don't need to worry about the feelings. Like they need to manage the feeling in a way as a byproduct. But that right. can't be their main obligation is to manage people's feelings rather than to, to manage their, their real asset. I think that real fiduciary responsibility is to is to be responsible for people making having the right amount of money, not uh, not feeling bad throughout the the period at some point. Oh my God, I love that. I, I think that uh, that that's going to make you, you just made uh, my Sam ecosystem probably another couple hundred million dollars on that concept <laughs> alone. That's that's genius. I really love that. Thank you for that uh, that that habit. I'm gonna I'm gonna incorporate that in our process for sure. Um, where can people find you if people want to listen more? I mean, uh, I, I just, I can't get enough. So I'm sure, uh, there's gotta be a place that people, if they wanted to search you out, websites, social media. My, my website you know, is probably the best, uh, com. That's probably the, the best place. I have lots of things there. Fantastic. Thank you, Dan. And I, I look forward to continuing. Maybe we'll have a volume too, because there's just, there's, we can go deep on, on a lot of these topics. And I, I've, I've been honored to, to know you for the last several decades and look forward to several decades ahead. Thank you. 
Me too. Talk to you soon. Okay. Yep. Good night.